You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Today's episode will be the audio from one of our live events recorded this week with John Carlin, who is a partner at Morrison and Forrester and the former Assistant Attorney General for the National Security Division of the Department of Justice. He also served as Chief of Staff to then-FBI Director Robert Mueller. Mr. Carlin spoke to the committee on December 4th about his new book and his time in government fighting the Code War against foreign adversaries and non-state actors who attacked the U.S. using cyber means. We hope you enjoy Mr. Carlin's remarks, and remember, you can always find the Standing Committee online at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on our Facebook page. You can drop us a line after the podcast or visit our website to hear the full audio from the event, including the Q&A at the end. Well, after that, I'm not going to pull out notes for this morning's uh, this morning's remarks. But thank you, thanks for uh, having me here this morning. I've always enjoyed this forum uh, at the ABA and National Security. I'll also say that in your prior uh, in your prior role, as we came up with a new approach on how to tackle national security cyber threats and train all of the U.S. attorneys' offices across the country, we encountered the first not strategic but tactical problem of we don't have any space to train these people, and so. We, we used to do our annual conference out at NGA, which was the only skiff large enough to hold uh, that many AUSAs who flew in from across, from across the country, about 500 folks. So thank you for that as well. Imagine this. Uh, you're at an employer inside the United States. You're a trusted retailer. People entrust their customer information to you, and you get a knock on the door. It's someone from the IT section, uh, and they come in to say, hey, boss, uh, we have a bit of an issue. We misconfigured a server. You know, we didn't put it in right onto the system, and uh, it looks like a low-level hacker got in. Uh, they didn't use any great tradecraft. We caught them. They're off the system. Nothing to worry about, just giving you a heads up. You think, well, I don't even know why I got that knock on the, knock on the door. You go back to breakfast, maybe. And a couple weeks later, you get another knock. This time, the same person comes back and says, hey, I got an email. It's got a lot of grammatical mistakes. It has a lot of misspellings. But it says that the person's pretty mad that we threw them off our system, and they want to be let back on to the network. And they also, by the way, say that they want two Bitcoin, which at the time were worth around $500, Otherwise, they're going to reveal the fact that while they were in our network before, they stole a relatively small amount of personal information, names, addresses. This is happening to companies every day, not just here in the United States, but around the world, on the scale of thousands and thousands of similar issues every week. Most companies confronted with that situation would do one of two things. One, they'd decide, hey, if this guy was such a great hacker then why does he need to be let back into the system? doesn't seem that sophisticated. It's a relatively small amount of information. Big deal. Let's go back to business. Or two, it's only 500 bucks. Let's just pay. Uh, at the worst, he embarrasses us anyway, but otherwise we've made the problem go away. And thousands and thousands of companies are making those payments every day, which is why we have such a robust criminal market in this space. 
In this case, though, the company did something different. They worked with law enforcement. And it's only because they worked with the government that they were able to find out that what looked like this low-level hacker who was after 500 bucks, and make no mistake, it really was after that 500 bucks. But he turned out to be an extremist from Kosovo who had moved from Kosovo to Malaysia. He was around 21, and believe it or not, he partly moved in order to get better access to broadband. It's not so great in Kosovo, it's better in Malaysia. So he went to Malaysia, and there, in a conspiracy with another hacker from Kosovo, a, a fellow extremist friend, they had hacked into this trusted U.S.-based retailer and stolen this information. What the company wouldn't have found out, though, is that hacker in Malaysia, and his name was Farizi, had become friends not through physical contact, but through Twitter with one of the most notorious terrorists in the world at the time. This was someone who had been born elsewhere and moved to the United Kingdom, named Junaid Hussein. And while in the United Kingdom, he had been uh, arrested and convicted for computer hacking and served time in prison. While he was in prison, he became radicalized. When he got out, he moved from the United Kingdom to Raqqa, Syria, where he was located at the very heart of the Islamic State of Levant. And this obviously is a real case. At the time that this was occurring, I was head of the National uh, Security Division. And we were seeing an unprecedented number of international terrorism cases. We brought well over 100 cases in roughly a two-year period, which is more international terrorism cases than we'd ever brought before. And we were seeing a phenomenon that many in the room are familiar with of a strategic change, where we had invested billions of dollars, created new departments and agencies like Homeland Security, the Director of National Intelligence, the division I was leading at Justice at the time, first new litigating division in 50 years, the National Security Division, all as post-September 11th reforms to get better at sharing information within and between governments. And we had done so with the idea in mind of preventing an Al-Qaeda-like attack, and an Al-Qaeda strategy of taking operatives over to the Afghanistan-Pakistan region, training them in person, and then deploying them back to try to commit sophisticated large-scale attacks on the scale of the September 11th. And as we saw with September 11th, an act that cost so many innocent lives, there they took Western technology in the form of aviation and turned it into a weapon. As a government, and between governments, as we got better at disrupting that type of threat and preventing another attack on the scale of September 11th, we saw the strategy of terrorist change starting first with uh, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but then at a whole new level with ISIS, we saw them change, and just like al-Qaeda had used aviation against us, we saw as ISIS figured out how to use another Western-made technology provided for free, in this case social media, that allowed them to communicate directly into the basements of our houses and talk to our children and other people who are on the, uh, who may be, overly trusting of who is on the other side of that internet, and they started a strategy of not just bombarding them with general propaganda, but getting into direct conversations, encouraging them to become the weapon, to kill where they live. And of that over 100-something cases that we brought in two years, we saw that the effect of that trend. So over 60% of those cases, the defendants were 25 or younger, and most troubling, in one-third, one-third of the international terrorism cases that we were bringing, the defendants were 21 or younger. 
And that's not, it's simply not something we'd ever seen before. We had to put out training on, on folks on how to use the juvenile, how to handle juveniles in the federal system. It's so rare across the range of crimes that we enforce to have juveniles inside the system. So as we were seeing the success of that strategy, the native English-speaking Junaid Hussein and his cadre were at the tip of the spear of those who were most effective at directing plots inside the United States. This is the same individual who moves from the United Kingdom, who's in Raqqa, Syria, and through Twitter becomes friends with Farizi in Malaysia. They start direct messaging. And Junaid Hussein and his cadre convinces Farizi to provide the information that with his fellow conspirator in Kosovo, they stole from this trusted US retailer of customers who placed that information in the private company's hands. And what he wants to do with the information, he could care less about killing, uh, care less about 500 bucks, right? What he wants to do is what ISIS does. You know, this was a group at the time that was committed to murdering Muslims and non-Muslims alike with impunity, that was using rape as a routine political tool, and that was selling women and children into slavery. And what Junaid Hussein wanted to do with that information was create a kill list. So what he did was he called through with his cadre the list of information from this company and looked to see who looked like they might be a military or a state police or someone who worked for the government, .edu, .gov, uh, .mil addresses. That's how he created the kill list. And then using Twitter, he pushed that kill list back to the United States. And when they did it, they didn't say obviously where they got it, but he put out a chilling you know, visual message and said, we're hacking you, we know where you live, we're going to come and we're going to kill you. That is the current threat. That is what makes cyber different than other types of strategic threats that we face. Think about it. It's five or six different countries. It's multiple nationalities. But what makes it different when you think about it is all those reforms that we put into place, and for this group in particular, legal and regulatory reforms that allowed these new departments and agencies to share information at scope and scale across government agencies and between governments, they don't work with this threat because it, they're a necessary part, but they're not sufficient. Because for the new threats that we're facing, whether it's from nation states or like in this case, terrorists, they require figuring out how to change our laws and regulations to encourage the private sector to be able to share information at speed and scale with the government, and equally, if not more important, for the government to be able to share at, at scale and speed back to the private sector, not just the strategic portrait of what the big threats are, but tactical information that they can use to protect their systems. Now, the reason I can go into so much detail in this case and do in the book is because the, this company did work with government, and working together, it is possible to take effective action even against terrorists located overseas. So Farizi is sitting in a jail cell in uh, Virginia, actually a federal prison, uh, after being extradited from Malaysia and convicted in serving 20 years about a year and a half ago, thanks to great work by the State Department, partnership with the Malaysians, and use of the criminal justice system. Junaid Hussein was located in ungoverned space in Raqqa, Syria. And he met a different type of justice. He was killed in a military strike that was publicly acknowledged by central command. After his death and the death of several members of his cadre in Raqqa, Syria, that's when we started to see what had been tactical success for us because we were able to interrupt so many plots, you know, including plots through great work by the FBI and intelligence uh, analysts. You know, plots where someone 
had literally declared he wanted to kill and was about to enter a bus and was armed with about a 12-inch knife and ended up being shot on the bus before he was able to harm someone. So we were just barely able to stop many of these plots. But I think you'll agree with me, it's not strategic success, it's failure if we have to be bringing cases at the rate of over 120 international terrorism cases, a third of which are involving uh, kids that are 21 or younger. Strategic success is preventing terrorist groups from being able to reach inside with that type of message and arming people about what the message is. And it involves taking effective action to keep safe havens away from overseas. And we did start to see a decrease in the case after some combination, I can't tell you exactly uh, what was the key cause or whether it was a combination of the, uh, of the two, but public education campaigns in terms of what they were trying to do, counter-messaging, and effective military action that denied them the safe haven overseas, and we saw the drop of, in cases inside the United States. So effective action is possible, and uh, which is one of the core themes of the book, whether it's terrorists, Russia, Iran, North Korea, uh, or China, for a long time, just pulling back a little bit, I started uh, out when I was prosecuting, I ended up specializing computer hacking and intellectual property cases, or chip, chip cases. The name actually comes from when Mueller was U.S. attorney in the Northern District of California. He tries to disown it, but it's true. It was under his leadership, <laughs> Chips. To be fair, he has no idea that Chips is also a television show. He doesn't watch television that involves people wearing short shorts and running around uh, the California highways. So, but I, when I was a Chip prosecutor, I worked on the criminal side of the house. And I worked with a great squad of FBI agents. I worked with Secret Service and worked with some of the uniformed military that did criminal cases in the District of uh, Columbia. But, while I was doing those cases, there was another squad behind a locked, secured, compartmented door that was doing the intelligence cases. And at the time, if an agent switched squads, they just disappeared, never to be seen again behind whatever was going on in that door. There was no uh, connectivity. And in fact, even when I was coordinating that computer hacking program nationally on the criminal side, I still didn't have any visibility into what was going on with nation state threats. It wasn't until I went over to the FBI and while we were working on the post, still uh, working on the post 9-11 transformation for Mueller that the door opened and I was able to see what is going on on the intel side of the house. And I told some of you this story before, but there was a great intelligence feat, great intelligence success uh, out at a facility in Virginia where on a giant jumbotron screen we could literally watch through a nice graphic user interface, a GUI, uh, literally watch in real time as nation states, particularly China, were hacking into places like universities, hopping from the university into private companies, and then we were watching, good visual representation of the information floating outside of the United States, billions and billions of dollars worth of intellectual property, trade secrets and trade negotiation strategies leave the country. It's what former director of the National Security Agency, Keith Alexander, called the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. And although it was an intelligence success, like the tactical success in bringing those prosecutions against international terrorists, it didn't feel like strategic success. And so the question was, how can we change? What can we do to change so that we're not watching this damage being done to our country that's causing real harm to real victims now, that's putting businesses and people out of work, but instead to get in and disrupt and start causing pain to the adversary. And one of the fundamental shifts in mindset that had to occur, and not without loss and not without cost, and this debate is still occurring, but 
I believe that fundamentally we can't succeed in this new code war that is being fought day to day unless the American people know that we're in it and that businesses know that we're in it. And step one on that is figuring out who did it so you can tell the story. But step two is making it public. And as late as really, I think it was 2012, I remember the directive coming out, it was the first time there was an unclassified report that said China was committing economic espionage on this scale. So it was the first time in my career that I could say as a government official what was patently obvious to private companies, which was that they were being hacked by China. Until we could talk about it, there's no way we could get the national will to address it. So one, figure out who did it. Two, make it public. And three, impose consequences. I'll wrap up uh, this part with uh, one case of the first case that we brought of its kind that involved that approach and then open it up to questions. So as we were looking, one of the steps we took was, well, number one, we need to at least apply the lesson of September 11th, right? We have to start sharing information across the law enforcement and intelligence divide within government. And that was that new network we created in roughly... 2013 of the National Security Cyber Specialists. I'm as bad as Mueller is in acronyms, so they ended up being called NISCIS because we weren't really thinking about it. Uh, nothing to do with NIS. So the NISCIS network was set up. That's the group that ended up getting trained as we tried to figure out where, uh, where we could fit that many people to give them uh, a classified briefing on what the threats were. They were trained on the one hand on what the intelligence threats were and how to handle classified information and protect it just like terrorism prosecutors. And on the other hand, they were trained on the bits and the bytes, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, ECPA, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, so that they could go out armed and bring those two skill sets and see we may not be able to use the criminal justice system in every case, but it shouldn't be, uh, the norm shouldn't be that we use the criminal justice system in no cases when it involves national security, national security issues or nation state actors. So that change in approach led to the first case of its kind, the indictment of five members of the People's Liberation Army, Unit 61398. I think that's an important moment, particularly now, as we're in this uh, renewed period of churn with China. And there was a lot of controversy over bringing the case, and this is a debate that, that still uh, occurs, as to why, why do it? Why bring the case? These are uniform members of another's ar army. And so one of the reasons why, and you can only do this by making it public and going into the detail, was because this was not traditional nation-state activity. This was the use of the second largest military of the world directed against private companies for private gain. And facts matter. And we showed that they did things like right as Westinghouse was going to do a joint venture with a Chinese partner to uh, lease out a lead pipe with no military application, they went and stole the technical design specifications for the lead pipe. So the next morning, instead of having to pay for the lease, they got it for free, no need, no need to pay. Or to use another example from that case of a U.S. subsidiary of a German multinational, SolarWorld, located out in California, in that case, they went in, they hit the weak part of the system, email, and they just stole conversations, and they used that stolen conversations to figure out the price point. Knowing the price point, they then deliberately embarked on a strategy of pricing their products right where they knew it would cause that the other company wouldn't be able to compete, and it worked. They drove them into bankruptcy. And then... As particular insult to all the lawyers in the room and that insult to injury, when that company sued for unfair trade practices, they stole the whole litigation strategy out uh, from SolarWorld. 
So this is not right traditional state secrets or military. This is not the use of intelligence that's been codified in international law for hundreds of years. This is theft. And just like international law, I use this example more for non-lawyers, but international law is a law of customary law, right? And there are some examples here, I think, that, that everybody knows, the idea of an easement. So this idea that comes from customary law in the United States that says if you let someone walk across your lawn noisily, long enough, they earn the legal right under the law to walk across your lawn. They get the easement. That's why people put up no trespass signs. So in many respects, this case in starting to make this public is putting up a giant no trespass sign and saying, that's not the international law I want to live under. Uh, it's starting to, instead of doing it through a multilateral treaty, do through actual action to create the world that we want to live in. And in this case, I think it, it had more of a consequence from one case than really we anticipated. We thought this was the start of a new approach of sharing information, reaching out to the private sector, and it did lead to cases, which we can talk about more if there are questions, against North Korea, Russia, and Iran. But this case alone, combined with the Sony attack on North Korea, which is still a, still a surprise. We had wargamed out for years what it would look like if a rogue nuclear-armed nation attacked the United States through cyber means, and we never thought it would be about a movie about a bunch of pot smokers. I don't know how many of you have seen it, but it's the only time in my career I've had to brief the President of the United States and start the briefing by giving a plot synopsis of the interview. And if you've seen it, that was a difficult task because that movie doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> but one thing that led from out of the response is a recognition that we had limited options when it came to cyber, and it caused President Obama to sign what Stewart used to call the April Fool's Order because it was never used, but an executive order on, uh, that allowed for, for the first time of sanctioning cyber actors not just the military or intelligence agents that hack and steal the secrets, but significantly those who benefit from the stolen secrets, so the companies or beneficiaries of the stolen secret. China was worried, based on the case I think that we had brought, the new executive order and sanctions, and a belief that we were going to use that new executive order, and it caused them to hammer out an agreement that, did, uh, that said, it was rather, in some ways narrow, but said, basically, you can't use, we agree, you can't use your military and intelligence to target a private company for the benefit of a private company located overseas. It didn't, didn't disclaim other types of activities. And then the G20 adopted that same norm as you try to create law, uh, international law, and an understanding of what's acceptable and what's not. And that agreement actually held for a fair amount of time, and we saw a decrease in exactly that type of activity inside the United States. We didn't see it so much overseas, which I think is indicative of the fact that it had to do with the agreement that was hammered out here. And lately, when I'm talking to clients, to third-party forensic firms, and to folks in the government, they're no longer holding to that agreement as they've hit this period of churning with President Trump. I think that's why you saw new uh, announcements from the Justice Department, from former Attorney General Sessions, but I've heard they are sticking with the plan. Uh, that they are going to, they have a China initiative to try to bring additional economic espionage and intellectual property cases against China, not just in cyber, but those that are physically enabled as well. I do think, though, it still shows that if you are targeted in your messaging, if you raise the cost sufficiently, that you can change behavior in this space. But again, it requires sticking to a commitment of accepting the diplomatic turn that's going to occur when you figure out who did it and make it public and start imposing consequences. And we keep needing to be creative on upping the consequences 
so that ultimately you change the calculation and particularly a rational actor like China decides, hey, it's more efficient, it's better for our economy to invest in research and development and compete fairly than it is to have a strategy of stealing information. As long as it was cost-free, they certainly weren't going to change their behavior. So uh, with that, I will open it up to questions. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Remember, you can visit the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity if you'd like to hear the Q&A session at the end of Mr. Carlin's remarks. You can also check us out on Twitter at ABA NatSec or on our Facebook page to find out about upcoming events or publications. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.